This episode of Live in Corporate is brought to you by Blind. Blind is a trusted community of more than 5 million verified professionals. On Blind, professionals connect and have honest discussions about salaries and what it's really like to work at or interview with a company. You can also join your private company channel to have a candid and safe conversation with your coworkers about what's really going on. And because it's anonymous, you can be honest and trust what you read. Check out teamblind.com to get the latest insights and the answers to your workplace questions. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. Look, I am so excited about a few different things. First of all, if you listen to this um, around the time of the recording, I got about a month until I'm uh, until I am welcoming my second daughter to this world. Yeah, and so I'm excited about that. I'm excited about our family continuing to grow. I'm excited about uh, just. Life continuing to change in really beautiful, exciting ways. Um, I I think about living corporate and I think about all the changes that we've been going through, particularly this year. But if even you look at like last year, we had our Kickstarter. We had our first campaign with Pfizer. We had um, we had some other work that we did with Live Ramp and some other brands. This year, we've revamped our entire website. We have a job board. We have a login portal for you to actually experience the the full to- the totality of our library and to really experience what it really means to um, to have a library of so many riveting compelling challenging conversations about the realities of black and brown folks at work uh, when I think about the fact that like we have content that's relevant to asp- aspirational allies we have content relevant to executives who want to be more inclusive be stronger leaders I I'm excited, right? I come on, I'm coming to the mic hot. I'm coming to the mic pumped up. You know what I'm saying? Like genuinely thrilled. And I continue to be invigorated by the quality of guests that we have on on Living Corporate. Adrian Parker. Adrian Parker is a lot of things, right? He's a writer. He's an advisor. He's a marketer. He's an executive. He's a, a public speaker. He's a, a mentor. Um, he's a great, he's a coach. Uh, he's a lot of great things, and you know you may know him um, from his his work as the global vice president of marketing for Patron Tequila, as well as his leadership roles at Great Goose Vodka, Intuit, Kate Spade, and Footlocker. Uh, you may know him um, from his work uh, writing for a variety of different publications. I am really appreciative of Adrian's time on this show having this conversation because we were talking a lot about just the theater that is DEI and how um, these corporate entities have yet to show real interest in creating equitable places to work, right? Like by and large, it is, it, it, it scant happens, right? Like it takes special people and talent to really mobilize real organizational change for the sake of those most marginalized. Um, and so, you know, I, I appreciate Adrian and his candor. I appreciate the fact that, you know, he's unapologetically himself. And I appreciate the conversations he and I had off mic. And so, again, um, I'm thankful and excited about 
this conversation you're gonna hear. We're gonna take a quick break and come back. But the next thing after that you're gonna hear is my chat with Adrian. See you in a minute. When you're building a culture of belonging, every word counts. That's why Textio brings the world's most advanced language insights into your hiring and employer brand content. Our industry-leading approach to artificial intelligence and machine learning provides the tools needed to find more diverse candidates. In short, Textio builds more equitable workspaces, guiding businesses and writing more inclusive job posts. And we're building on that success by bringing even more products to the market for all people who share our belief that language matters. Words have power. And at Textio, we harness that power to increase the access and availability of value-driven work for everyone. Living Corporate is brought to you by Doximity. Doximity helps over 2 million medical professionals. We are the largest medical network that includes over 80% of physicians and over 50% of physician assistants and nurse practitioners. We don't take that responsibility lightly and committed to working towards a more equitable world inside and beyond our virtual office walls. If you want to learn more about Doximity, check out your app store at D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. That's D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. Welcome back to the Workplace Democracy podcast segment brought to you by the Living Corporate Network. I'm your host, Tyra Robinson, an attorney licensed to practice in the state of Maryland. Thank you so much for tuning in again to the podcast segment that informs you about strategies to protect your rights as a professional employee. During this segment, we're going to talk about when the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, first started bringing lawsuits. Now, as a refresher, and you might remember from episode one that the EEOC is an independent enforcement agency that enforces federal workplace discrimination laws through administrative and judicial enforcement and provides education and technical assistance on those laws. The EEOC was established by the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and given limited enforcement powers. Those powers included the power to hear and look into charges of discrimination, but did not include the power to sue employers who were violating the principal discrimination law at that time, which was Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The EEOC was actually not granted authority to file lawsuits directly against private companies until 1972, but that doesn't mean they weren't using their powers in the ways that they could. The EEOC, when it was first enacted, used its available powers to reconcile positions between employers and employees and often reached successful resolution in instances of segregation and sex discrimination. In 1972, Congress granted the EEOC the power to enforce Title VII against private employers. After surmounting organizational challenges and transitioning from a solely investigatory and conciliatory role, the EEOC filed five lawsuits in 1972. An early Supreme Court case, General Telephone Co. v. EEOC, described the EEOC as, quote, When the EEOC acts, albeit at the behest of and for the benefit of specific individuals, it acts also to vindicate the public interest in preventing employment discrimination. One interpretation of what the Supreme Court was saying in that case is that when the EEOC litigates a case, it's not just doing so in the way that a private attorney would in zealously advocating for the best outcome for their client. 
Rather, the EEOC acts to secure specific relief for discrimination victims, but also to prevent employment discrimination more broadly for the public's interest. Now that you have some of the historical context, let's talk about some of the first cases that the EEOC brought after obtaining litigation enforcement authority. Some of those cases included Motorola Inc. v. McLean and Equal Employment Opportunity Commission v. Lack and Joyce Co. The Motorola case involved allegations of race discrimination and the Lack and Joyce case involved allegations of sex discrimination. In both of those cases, the employers tried to avoid liability by alleging that the EEOC failed to follow required administrative processes and that therefore the lawsuits could not be permitted to continue. In the Motorola case, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in the EEOC's favor, holding that the employer must comply with the EEOC's requested demand for evidence and investigation of the allegations that brought the case to be. In the Lack and Joyce case, the U.S. District Court for the District of Wisconsin also ruled in the EEOC's favor, holding that the EEOC followed all necessary prerequisites before initiating a lawsuit in court. What these two early cases demonstrate is that a point that we discussed back in episode one, that paying attention to all requirements in the step-by-step process to file a charge with the EEOC is critical to ensuring you can eventually reach a courtroom to pursue your claim if necessary. Thank y'all again so much for listening to the Workplace Democracy podcast segment brought to you by the Living Corporate Network and myself, Tyra Robinson. I hope you'll continue to tune in to every segment to learn more about how to bring democracy to your workplace. Take care. Please understand that this podcast is only intended for educational purposes and is not a replacement for individualized legal advice. You should always seek the services of a licensed attorney who will look at the specific facts of your individual circumstance if you are contemplating legal action. Additionally, the views expressed in this podcast are my own and are not reflective of my employer. This episode of Living Corporate is brought to you by Blind. Blind is a trusted community of more than 5 million verified professionals from startups to some of the largest companies in the world like Amazon, Deloitte, Ernst Young, Goldman Sachs, Google, JP Morgan, Meta, and more. Blind's mission of transparency seeks to break down professional barriers and silos at work so that you can make productive change and advance your career. It's a safe space to ask questions and get the real-time insights and perspectives from people who know what you've been through. On Blind, you can connect and have honest discussions about everything from compensation, company culture, performance reviews, promotions, and more. You can also join your exclusive private company channel to chat with your coworkers about company policies and what's really going on at work. And because it's anonymous, you can be honest and trust what you read all blind. Download and install Blind from the App Store or visit teamblind.com to get access to the latest salary, company reviews, and interview experiences thousands of companies worldwide. Living Corporate is brought to you by Doximity. Over 90% of graduating medical students joined Doximity to use our tools before earning their doctoral degree. As medicine's largest network, there's an elevated level of responsibility to everything we do. We don't take that responsibility lightly and are committed to working towards a more equitable world inside and beyond our virtual office walls. If you want to learn more about Doximity, make sure you go to your app store, 
Type in D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. That's D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. Thanks, Zach, for having me on. Pleasure to have you. Listen, um, I think, like I just told you, I've been following you for a while, just from a distance. Um, Recently, you know, you wrote an article um, called Progress is Too Often a Decoy, Diversity Needs a Do-Over. And you talk about um, talk about a lot of things, right? I don't, don't want to just I don't want to jump the gun. Like we can we can warm up to it, man. Um, but I'm excited to really talk about. I really want to have this conversation because um, one, especially in the context of like marketing, it's hyper racist. Um, and this, I mean, and for let's say I'll even use a, a gentler word, disinclusive. Um, and yet. It's where we see so many black and brown faces on screen. And um, but when you really talk about the decision making and the actual power, which all this kind of rolls back up to, uh, it's the same hands and faces that you're that you're accustomed to seeing. Um, but before we do all of that, before we go into all of that, man, like let's talk about like your recent pivot. Like, you know, you've you've worked for some incredible brands. Um, talk to me about your your most recent pivot and why you decided to, you know, to. I'm going to, I don't want to use the word pivot again, but decided to change. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm super fortunate, man. I've been, uh, I'm old head now. So I guess I'm, you know, I'm 42. Uh, I've been privileged to have, you know, over a two decade career in advertising and marketing. You know, I, I didn't know this was a, a even an industry or career, you know, you don't see marketers in career day when you're in school. And, you know, I got lucky, got an internship and two decades later, I've been fortunate, you know, I've been able to do um, some amazing things in advertising and marketing from, you know, Patron Tequila and Grey Goose Vodka to QuickBooks and TurboTax software to Radio Shack and Foot Locker. You know, I've worked with some amazing brands across uh, my career and, you know, it's just been such an amazing opportunity, you know, to be a storyteller, to be a writer, uh, to be a strategist, to be a designer and all these passions I had growing up. And, you know, I think for me, you know, my most recent position corporately, I was the global vice president of marketing for Patron Tequila. So, you know, it was, you know, the ascension to a global brand leader, you know, a billion dollar P&L, uh, you know, an 80 person team and all these things, you know, I had I, worked for, you know, uh, my entire career, so to speak. And so I stepped away from that job a year ago. You know, I was a part of, you know, what people are calling the great resignation or the great reprioritization or the great shuffle. Um, but for me, you know, and as you could probably attest to, you know, during the pandemic, so many things happened that people aren't just changing careers, they're changing their lives. And I think for me, that meant taking a step away from the, the corporate, I think, um, structure and um, exercise to spend time with my family, to just spend time uh, writing and creating and really just learning to uh, find that value in myself for myself. And, you know, I think kind of relating to what we're going to talk about today is I think, you know, especially in corporate settings and environments, you climb the ladder, especially as a man, a black man, um, not just black men, but I think as black men, there are experiences and I'll say injuries that are very unique to us. You realize that, you know, a lot of people I admire got ahead, not by challenging uh, and confronting racism, but by maybe being conditioned by by assimilating to it. And I think for me, I wanted to take some time to just kind of reground myself, spend time with my family, but also be an advocate, be a voice, be an instigator even 
for positive change that needs to happen um, as well. So I've, I've been really fortunate to spend the last year uh, doing some writing and doing some consulting and some some uh, some advising of brands. And, you know, the common theme is always how do we get better at inclusion and diversity? And so I'm excited to have this conversation. You know, it's interesting, like the piece that you wrote um, and some of the like some, the voice I heard behind the words um, spoke to um, a certain level of frustration and kind of like, all right, enough is enough. I'm calling out for what it is. Talk to me about when you first experienced that feeling of, hey, man, these white folks really ain't trying to really do as much as they act like they're trying to do. Like, when did you first experience that? You know what? I, I still remember vividly the first time I encountered, I'd say, overt racism in a corporate setting. You know, I was a young guy, I was probably 23 or four in advertising in New York City. I remember having this experience with a coworker. It was overtly just racist. It was just like I was dismissed. I was degraded. I was um, spoken to and treated in just such a demeaning way. And I remember my reflex, right, was, you know, because I, I grew up, you know, I grew up as an NAACP member in the black church. So I knew, hey, no, this is wrong. I'm about to, like, take corrective action, right? I remember going to the vice president of marketing at that time, and his words to me were, he looked me in the eye, right? And he was like, hey, don't put this in writing. Because, A, he didn't want to deal with the fallout from having to deal with, you know, discrimination claim on his watch. But, B, he didn't know what to do. And instead of that moment, right, instead of challenging and not even challenging, standing up for myself, right, and agency and dignity to say, hey, no, this is wrong. This needs to be corrected. I acquiesced. I silenced myself. I went along. Because, you know, I wanted to preserve my career, my reputation. And, and I don't fault myself at that time. You know, I'm, I'm just trying to, like, survive and, you know, be a good employee. But I remember that planted a seed that probably, you know, was still bearing fruit, um, you know, years later where you learn that to survive in corporate, you do have to kind of become a part of that system. And I think fast forward, you know, a decade or two later, I, I realized I'm a part of that. So I was sitting with a, a mentor, you know, this is 20 years later, and he's in the exact same position, right? He's uh, been hired by a team. He's being treated differently. He's like, well, he wants to challenge it. And my reflex was to tell him what the white leader at that time told me. He was, hey, don't put in your writing. Try to suck it up. Try to tough it out. And I remember he didn't. You know, he So in that moment... I became the I became the student. It's like, no, this isn't right. Like, why would I stay in a place that doesn't reflect the values and the virtues that are dear to me as a, you know, as a as a human, right? It's not even about corporate, it's just about, you know, um community. And so he left that job and has found a great place. But I think for me, it all came together probably, you know, 2020, like a lot of people, was just the reckoning of realizing that the success that we've attained. And the hurdles we jumped, other people shouldn't jump those same hurdles. And unless I'm doing something to prepare the way for the next Adrian, who's the next VP or the next director of marketing or the next leader, then it's all for nothing. And so I, I think for me, I think the last two years, you know, um, the simple answer is it's been um, just that journey of realizing that, man, for for me to be successful alone is a very lonely goal or outcome. I've got to do things to make that way. And sometimes that means leaving. That means challenging. 
And that means speaking up, you know, in the industry, you know, as, as you know, like the advertising industry is built on equity. That's the irony of it. It's brand equity. It's building value for brands, right? So we have an industry committed to uh, creating um, equity for products, and we don't do the same for our people. And so I think I've got a voice and an opportunity to call that out, but also be a part of the solution. You know, like to, to that end, because um, I, I have two follow-ups. First off is it's it's interesting that, you know, the the function of corporate America for black survival is to acquiesce in your own oppression. Um, like, you know, you can't, you know, like to playing the game. And I'm, I've, I've now like grown completely dissatisfied with that phrase, but playing the game often means letting folks mistreat you or miss or speak about you in any kind of way, not advocating for yourself, not using your voice, not speaking up. It doesn't matter if you speak up calmly, if you speak up authoritatively, your voice um, is something that you should look to to minimize um, or uh, whitewash um, or uh, or self-regulate as much as possible. Um, so I hear that. And I think it's like really important. And you said about your old head. So you got some years. I'm I'm 32. But like but we're still in like relatively like the same generation of like just my hope is that like we folks who are listening to this, who are in there who are kind of starting to hit their midpoint of their careers um, that we improve, that we take the baton that was handed to us. And we, we don't, we don't pass that behavior on. Um, Like, I think so much of that is like survival, right? That, that comes from a place of historical survival, just from the reality of black folks in America Um, and not, but, and uh, I want us to do more than survive, right? Like I want us to actually, um, thrive. And I want us to be able to c- go home and look at ourselves at the end of every day and have some level of respect and peace about ourselves. You know what I mean? Like it can't just all be about getting your check, which may end any day now, you know? So, um, so that's, that's the first thing. The second follow-up and qu- more of a question to you is my, fr- my initial question was, so I appreciate the sh- you sharing about your experience of racism I'm curious about when you were doing DEI, quote unquote, DEI work, diversity conclusion work, and you realized the first time that these white folks who told you that they wanted to grow, they wanted to change, they wanted help, they wanted to do this. When you initially realized, oh, there's a limit here. What did that what was that like? Yeah, I know. It's a, it's, it's, it's a great question. You know, I think. I think the first thing for if you know, if I'm listening, if I'm a listener to this podcast, I think, especially if you're black in corporate America, like don't beat yourself up. Like your brain is wired for survival. And so the things that you had to do to preserve yourself, uh, your family, your welfare, your reputation, right? You had to do those things. But I think, you know, my Angela, right? You know better, you do better. I think as we learn, right, and we see the inequity and we see some of the performative aspects of DEI, I think we have an obligation to speak up with integrity. And so, you know, for me, my story is, you know, I was always, I was doing the right things, right? So I'm a part of all the diversity committees, um, you know, trying to challenge my team in our marketing and our, in our vendors and how we use our money, our agencies to be diverse. Right. Uh, and, and the ad week article talks about, you know, some steps I took, right. We're doing a diagnostic, making sure we're, you know, putting it in writing, we're making our public commitments, and, you know, I think what the article really 
uh, narrates is when I met that glass ceiling there because in every corporation, right, there's this invisible line, right, of comfort. And if the equity actions in your company or organization have to still go through a bottleneck of, you know, maybe majority white or majority male leaders who don't, who aren't as invested in that progress, I found that it's doomed to fail from, uh, is doomed to fail from the beginning. And so instead of getting into actual actions that alleviate inequity, right? That shift power or structure, that shift resources and create real opportunities. I saw firsthand, right? That people were actually more committed to uh, performative, right? So it was press releases, it was campaigns, it was, you know, $10,000 scholarships. It was these little micro budgets that made us feel better about doing something about the problem, but actually not committed to actually changing the structures or the systems or the policies that create inequity. And so when I saw that, you know, I, I went through all probably all the phases of grieving, right? You're like, man, how could I have missed it? Because uh, I've been a part of trying to work for it. But then for me, I, and I think a lot of listeners will um kind of, you know, have this same, you go through this grieving of, man, I feel like I wasted my time because we weren't committed to the same goal. And so I, I think part of part of the learning for me was that unless those equity actions and all the diversity councils and the chief diversity officer hires, unless those are actually committed to long-term uh, permanent commitments that actually reduce and repair inequity it's it's all a show it's all for the audience and so and so i think i've been committed to really calling that out in my own community and organizations here nonprofits, but also with with ceos and, and 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 company founders and it's an uncomfortable conversation uh but i think there are those it's not hopeless right and i know that this all sounds bad it's not hopeless there are organizations that are committed to it they're doing it by design they're doing it deliberately and so for me, I can't say this is advice, but for me, Adrian Parker, I'm committed to being a part of those. I can no longer be the transformation guy to help people that aren't committed to real justice look like they're committed to it. I, I just can't do it for now. And so my encouragement is to find those places, find those people, connect with them and start to build that, you know, in, in our own communities, with our own companies um, in a way that's true to who we are. You know, there's something, there's something there too, that you said, I've never heard this term before micro budgets. Um, <laughs> like, but that'd be what it is though. Like, cause it's like, it's like, man, it's like, it's like, man, your company's valuated at like $15 billion. Like, why are you, why are y'all celebrating $20,000? This is weird. Like, like what, like we, I've seen y'all make 30, $40 million acquisitions. So, why are y'all committing $2 million over five years? <laughs> and to what, yeah. like, like, what does that look like? Um, you know, you know, you're, you're the, you're a marketing expert. Um, so I, I asked this question like with sincerity is why is it that people are so like, we do gravitate to theater. We like the show. We like yeah. the look and that's not just black folks. I'm saying like, just, yeah, in general, yeah. We love, I think to the point, honestly, age like where we're we conflate um we conflate gesture 
with transformation or with actual change. Like, so be huge gestures. Painting the street Black Lives Matter is a huge gesture. You can see it from 20,000 feet. But there's still black folks going to be killed on that street. So, like, why is that, though? Like, where do you think that comes from? No, I think it comes from a place where like we talked about how our brain is wired, right? And I spent a lot of time just like, why do we do the things we do? Trying to understand the psychology of it. And I think we're wired for connection. We're wired to for acceptance. We're wired um, to be agreeable. And I think in those times, right, there's there's this human, this innate um, impulse, right, to just be accepted. And so it what we do consciously and subconsciously is we make the finish line closer, right? So the real finish line, right? I'll give a great example would be in the spirits industry. The spirits industry is one of the least diverse industries, I mean, in America. I mean, you're talking about since prohibition, I mean, maybe 4% of the spirits industry is, you know, African-American. Think about all the margins. It's a very lucrative industry, right? I mean, so I've seen it firsthand. It's And so I sit at the intersection of spirits, which is very, uh, you know, I'd say not, you know, uh, disinclusive, and obviously advertising, which is probably equally, you know, uh, equally bad. And so you think of all the money that goes through this industry, right? And you would say, okay, to, and I'm, I'm this is just an example, to rectify that, right? To uh, justice would be making it fair, making it equal, and correcting the source of injustice. I'll be, you know, looking at our supply chain. What vendors are we using? Are we making sure that people have the same access to capital? Are we creating a uh, entrepreneurs who can start their own brand, who are the people in government who who greenlight all of these products. Like the whole thing is right now, I'd say rigged. Uh, it's probably a strong word, but it's probably accurate to um, to exclude African-Americans or black and brown people from that source of revenue. And so the right thing to do the for true justice would be to alleviate that injustice, to give them opportunity. Instead, what we do, right? Painting the street to your analogy is, well, it's, oh, well, here's the, you know, the loan. Here's the little campaign. We're going to put black people in our advertising. We might even hire, we might hire a black person, you know, at the VP level to kind of help us look better. But we're honestly not committed to making those changes. And a lot of it's fear. It's fear of change. It's fear of losing the control or the profit or the economic advantage, um, you know, a big source, and there's a lot of research that has been done about this recently has been the biggest source of uh, black injustice or anti-black racism in our industry and in spirits and, and I think advertising is just white nepotism. It's just people protecting their advantage, right? Hey, my uncle owns this company. My uh, cousin runs the ad agency. And so I, I think we're so committed to protecting our, ourselves um, as an industry that we won't let other other people in. So it's easier to perform, you know, it's that decoy of diversity than actual change because actual change is hard. It's messy. It's ugly. You've got to face your own demons, the things that you're doing wrong. You've got to lead your team in a vulnerable place. And honestly, if you're honestly, if you're white, you don't really have to do it. Like, honestly, I mean, if me and you were a different race, would we be having this conversation? I, I don't know. Like, so, you know, and I'm not vilifying, I know amazing white people, right? So I'm not vilifying uh, white people. I'm saying as a white professional, you have responsibility in these places where 
you can choose not to participate in justice work and you really don't get dinged for it. And I think that's ultimately the the biggest opportunity. You know, um, you know, to, to that end, man, I think about even like like to your point about just the structure of all of this. It's, I mean, and, and it goes this all also goes back to capitalism. Um, and I, and that's why, you know, my perspective, my position on on that is like black capitalism isn't going to save us either. Uh, but it's it's frustrating. Right. Like I'm thinking about Diddy's letter. He wrote he wrote an open letter to corporate America. I'm sure you I'm sure all the black marketing executives know about the letter. But for the sake of those who might um, who maybe didn't know or I don't know, if you live in Iraq, you don't know who PDD is. I don't know. That's crazy. But um, anyway, I'm going to read a part of it. In 2019, Brands, he said in 2019, Brands spent $239 billion on advertising. Less than 1% of that was invested in black-owned media companies. Out of the roughly $3 billion General Motors spent on advertising, we estimate only $10 million was invested in black-owned media. Only $10 million out of $3 billion. Like the rest of corporate America, General Motors telling us to sit down, shut up, and be happy with what we get. So, like, talk to me a little bit about what are the reactions that you, you've gotten? Because I know that you've advocated for larger budgets. You've advocated for um, more programmatic approaches and not just, a, you know, a, like a spot here or a look here. Like, what is what are those what are those because you sit in these rooms. So what do those conversations look like in real time? You know what? I've seen the spectrum, you know, and I think there are there are. uh leaders, white and black, who are committed to true change. But I think the challenge is once you get past, you know, the hearing the black stories, and I, I've seen, you know, presidents of companies cry, right? And I've seen them have this grieving, the shame, guilt approach to like, I had no clue. And these are good, these are friends, these are people who I respect, who have just been like, hey, I had no idea it was that, I had no clue. Like, I, I just didn't know it was that bad. But then it's like, okay, once you awaken to the problem, it's time to get to work. And I think that work is where it gets ugly and messy. So, you know, to, to Diddy's point, right? I mean, these are billions of dollars and a trickle, this a, a very, you know, a rounding error of money goes to black uh, businesses or the black community. And so I think part with the conversation in those rooms is often, you know, there's people who deny it. I mean, there are people in you know corporate America who, who deny systemic racism exists who deny that they have a role or, or, a, or an obligation. Um, and honestly, I'll be honest, this needs to be talked about too. There are black people, black and brown people in these companies who, because they they use themselves as a case study that the company isn't racist. Meaning, hey, because I'm a CEO or I'm on the board, hey, they can't be racist because they let me in and they ignore the whole litany of, you know, of discrimination as well. And so we have an opportunity to, to to speak up about that as well. But it's a hard conversation because most people, I say the majority of people I interact with, they're realists. A realist is a person who sits in that middle seat. They know they hear your black stories. They know it's hard. They know you're trying. They know you're not being treated fairly. They want to coach you, but they also sit with people who deny uh, your reality. And they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to shake the tree, right, that feeds their family. And so they sit in that middle seat where they're inactive. And my I, my commitment, my hypothesis, if you will, is that you can, the people who are denying it don't spend time with it. I, I don't, at least. The people who are right in that middle seat, they're, I think, the linchpin for progress. If we can just say, listen, you lack the courage or the honesty to make that next step, just like walk with me. And so I think, 
I've tried to call it mentor, reverse mentor or adopt, you know, people who are realists who are afraid. Hey, let's start to do this. So ask the right questions. So a lot in that article, right? It's just I'm just teaching people how to connect the data and ask the questions that lead to change. And so to me, that's where you can have those conversations in a way that de-risk um, that de-risk the uh, perception of you know white leaders who are fearful. Because um, a lot of them, they're you know they're tired of. It. They don't want to hear about white supremacy. They don't want to hear about and you know the black experience. They're tired of talking about it. They'd like to move on. And when you talk about your experience, sometimes they get offended because they're like, "Hey, I worked hard. You know, I paid myself through college. I did these things." So when you point out white advantage or you know uh, anything like that, they they get offended. And so I think we do have to have people who are building those bridges to have the conversation. But I think it starts with data. It starts with committing to action and walking with those people who who are realistic about it in a way that they can start to mimic the actions of change. Adrian, man, look, um, you know what? Let's do this. Let's let's get kind of meta. All right. Living corporate. Let's talk about living corporate. And I'd love to get your. Your like real reaction from a marketing and branding perspective of like how we exist and we can kind of do like a little mini coaching thing right here. And you can invoice me after the podcast. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> so, all right. I got you. So here's the thing. We exist in this space where we've built a really niche audience of black and brown professionals, aspiring allies, executives, so on and so forth. Um, and we have brands that we work with and that have we have worked with to do different uh, media uh, activations and campaigns and things of that nature. We also have a job board that's been relaunched, blah, 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 blah. Um, at the same time, we're very explicit in that we're not centering white comfort or white feelings. We don't use a bunch of the fluffy language that you're going to get. If you listen to like Brene Brown or whatever, we're going to have authentic frank conversations um, and you're going to see this black face and other black and brown faces facilitate the conversations. Um, at the same time, I'd like to be a, vi- you know, we, we're viable for a profit company. Like, you know, we're making money. We're not a nonprofit. We're an LLC. And we have and we have different contracts and stuff. We want to continue to grow. As you look at the information I sent you behind the scenes. And even as you hear our conversation here and the fact that we have hundreds upon hundreds, over 1500, actually, pieces of digital media, all that do this in different lenses and uh, flavors. What do you see being some of the limitations of living corporate as we exist today in terms of really being like, let's say my dream is for us to be almost like a like a vice or a complex. Like, where do you see the limitations being with our brand as it exists right now? Ooh. It's a good question, man. You know, I've had this conversation with a handful of, I'd say, Black-owned, Black-founded, and Black-led companies and entrepreneurs. I think the challenge with growth, or I, and I'm saying success in quotation marks, because financial growth and financial success often or historically have been tied to getting access to um you know, financial, it's, it's economic terms. There's financial growth and financial success. The challenge with a lot of black owned or black led organizations in any space, particularly in media or content, is that by having a black face, a black lens, it ties you directly to what we talked about earlier. It's the black budget. 
right? It's the micro budget, right? And so that automatically goes to a multicultural fund that goes to the DEI fund that goes to, you know, uh, and it's literally, I mean, you know, I'm, I hate to say it, but in companies I've been at, I mean, it's been less than 1% of their total budget, right? So it automatically relegates a lot of our black owned companies to that little sliver of the budget. And it, and when you're locked into that space, that column on the Excel spreadsheet of their budget, it's hard to get to the 99% of the budget that is freely flowing to, you know, majority owned media content providers, et cetera, because the black content experience is viewed as um, um, special. It's viewed as uh, unique and like it's viewed as sometimes charity. Versus, oh, we're just a bona fide media partner organization helping you spread your word. And so to break out of that, quote unquote, black budget, um, if you're pitching or presenting to you know a larger organization, sometimes requires you to actually show that you can have the reach and the scale. So it's like breaking down your mission into the financial, the economic language that a lot of the decision makers value. And so honestly, that I think that that's been the biggest bridge. At the same time, one of the people I I mean, I'm a big fan. So I'm in the spirits industry, right? So I spent almost eight years selling, you know, tequila and vodka and rum. Um, there's a brand called Uncle Nearest. I don't know if you heard of Uncle Nearest. Uncle Nearest is it's a black owned, black founded Tennessee whiskey, right? And the Fawn Weaver, the CEO who founded it, right? Um, Uncle Nearest was uh the formerly enslaved man who actually taught, you know, uh, Jack Daniels how to make whiskey. So, you know, he's really one of the founders of Jack Daniels. And so they are creating an entire uh, black owned spirits company, not intended to sell, to sell out to a bigger company. They're creating legacy funds for his descendants. They're creating economic opportunity. So I'm a big fan of honestly black ownership. And a quote she said recently that stuck with me was this. She said, I spend no time talking about the problem. I spend all my time talking about the solution. So she's getting investors. She's growing her company. And for me, it was a, a lightning moment because I think for so long, and you know, I've been like rallying around, hey, here's the problem. And I think we need people talking about the problem always. Me and you, we need to keep having this conversation on a larger platform. I hope a million people listen to this. But at the same time, we do need people who are talking all about solutions. And I think what living corporate is, is the solution. I think it's, hey, let's build the thing for us, for our future that builds legacy opportunities, et cetera. And honestly, I don't, there's no silver bullet to, to do that. But I think part of it is, you know, showcasing that you can have that reach and scale um, on your own. So it's, it's not even a living corporate isn't a, it happens to be black owned and it's about the black experience, but it's just as, elite is just as you know uh opportunistic is just as savvy as any other white owned you know media or, or or podcast company and so you know looking at your page and your your assets yeah you you guys are on that track like you know it's not the black or lesser version of no it's it's our version and so that's what i love ownership i love entrepreneurship and i love i think building it for the future for your family hopefully you don't know if you have i kids do not, i want another one on the know, way yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like it's time to get it. It's time to get this so they can inherit. They can 
own it. They can, you know, distribute it. So I, I think that, that's that's my view. I'm very passionate about what are the solutions, and I think you're a, a part of that. Now, look, y'all heard Adrian uh, Parker say that right here. All right. Thank you. I, I appreciate the endorsement. We transcribe all these conversations. We'll probably put your face in this great quote right on the front of the website. I ain't even going to hold you. That's why it's cool. Oh, I love it. oh I love man, it. Adrian! Look, man, uh, we appreciate you as a guest, a friend of the show. Please come back whenever. Would love to c- c- continue to. I, I know we're gonna have conversations off mic, um, but I just want to say thank you um, for you. Like you said earlier, there aren't a lot of black men um, in these seats. And then, if I'm a double click, black men in these seats who are willing to speak truth to power. A lot of us, man. I don't know. It's a podcast from the time. A lot of black men want to be white men, and that's a whole separate discussion. But I, yeah, that's a that's a that's a whole. That's, it might be the book, it might right be there. the book. <laughs> but it's true. Like we have to divest from this patriarchy and white supremacist system that we, you know, we we we, we still think we can get. We still think that's. I think a, a lot of us think that that's like the the pathway for us. And, and I and I I don't. I just I firmly philosophically disagree. Um. So again, kudos to you. Thank you for all your work. Thank you for your your language. Thank you for your voice. And I will talk to you soon, man. Awesome. Thanks, Zach. Keep doing what you're doing, man. God bless you. God bless. Peace. And we're back. Yo, thank you again. Shout out to Adrian Parker again. Adrian Parker, make sure you look, check out adrian click all the links in the show notes you can learn more about him on his website his blog follow him on twitter follow him on linkedin you know what i mean like really get to know i mean it's rare we don't have a lot of black male executives that come to live in corporate to talk so candidly so every time i'm able to interact with them in this kind of context i'm thankful right um we just we don't it just doesn't happen and so i believe um if you are looking for space where we're going to have frank conversations where we're going to, I'm even going to say push the envelope, right? It's actually not that we're actually just decentering whiteness and we're centering marginalized perspective and experience. Then living corporate is that space. You're going to continue to see some things from us. As you look at our platform, um, the evolution is going to continue, right? Evolution is not a linear journey. Is it linear? Let me think about that. Evolution is not a, is not a, hmm, let me think about that. Evolution, no. Aaron, cut all this out and think about this. You know, evolution is a journey. We're going to continue forward. And just because you've seen us go from one stage to another does not mean that that's all we have. We actually have, I'm excited as I think about the rest of this year, as I think about Q1 next year, as I think about our advisory board, I think about the things that we're building and developing. I think about our new show. I think about our new shows. (laughs) I'm excited. And so my hope is, is that you listen to this podcast, you recognize this represents a network of pods of their own individual podcasts. Check us out. Search living corporate on your podcast, especially Apple podcasts. You can actually see that we have a channel. We have a whole channel on Apple podcasts, right? So, and it's all different shows right it's all of our shows right so like my point is just to get familiar if you haven't share this with a friend with a colleague with a supervisor with someone who says they want to really learn they want to be a better ally they want to do it like this is the space for them right Uh, until next time y'all this has been zach 
You've been listening to Living Corporate. Catch you next time. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. This episode of Living Corporate is brought to you by Blind. Blind is a safe, trusted community of more than 5 million verified professionals. Head over to teamblind.com to get the latest insights into salaries, company reviews, and interview experiences at thousands of companies worldwide.